All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Genesis chapter 19. If you have one of our welcome uh, uh, table Bibles, one of the Bibles from our welcome table, it's on page 14. And um, if, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to keep that one, okay? I just want to encourage you. We, we want to, to be people of the Word. We want to get into the Word together. And uh, I want to encourage you to have... Uh, Technology is great. I love having uh, access to all kinds of, of Bible translations on my phone and things like that. But if you're like me, you get easily distracted. Your phone is not the best place for that. Okay, so I, it, it, this is this this is really helpful to keep us from distractions. If I have a Bible straight in front of me, so I want to encourage you um, to have the one in front of you and follow along with me as we as we go through this this morning. It's been eight weeks since we've been in Genesis. Chapter 18, okay, is where we left off. We did cover chapter 20 last week. We flipped them around so that we could go through chapter 19 this week because of the sensitivity of the things that are in this and and having Redeemer kids available today. But eight weeks since chapter 18, and chapter 18 and 19 really kind of fit together well in several ways, and and we'll see those as we work through uh, this text this morning. Verse 25 of chapter 18, Abraham asks God this question. He says, won't the judge... Of all the earth, <coughs> excuse me, do what is just? Genesis 19 answers that question with a definitive yes. So I want to pray again. I know we just prayed. But before we read God's word together, I want to pray and ask him to help us through this. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you that what we read here is true and good and right. We pray that by your spirit, you would help us to see that and follow it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I realize there's a bit of irony in taking so long for us to get to Genesis chapter 19 because it's a passage that deals uh, very soberingly with God's judgment and wrath. And, and for more than a month now, I've been, I've been warning you as parents, hey, this, this is coming next week, Right? And then something happens and, and it gets put off to the next week and it just keeps getting put off and put off and put off and now we're finally here and God's judgment is unavoidable, right? We're going to read the chapter. We're going to go through this. It, it's here. It, it, it's one thing for us to have to reschedule the preaching of a chapter on God's judgment, but it's another thing altogether for us to keep putting off the reality of God's judgment that's coming And yet that's what many people do because it's an uncomfortable reality to deal with, right? Even as believers, this is a hard thing for us to even picture, let alone discuss. And so what what do we do? We we tend to focus on God's love and grace instead. And those are great things. Those are true things in Scripture. Those are vital things for us to focus on. But we can only truly understand the depth of, of the richness of God's love and God's grace and God's mercy when we see them in light of what we actually deserve because of our sin. And that means that we have to understand how God himself views sin, which means that we have to talk about his judgment. And so here's what we're going to see this morning in this passage, and this is a sobering reality. Nobody escapes the justice of God unless God himself rescues them from it. Nobody escapes the justice of God unless God himself rescues them from it. We're going to jump right in. Look at verse 1. Lot gets some visitors. 
The two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway. When Lot saw them, <coughs> excuse me, he got up to meet them. He bowed with his face to the ground and said, My lords, turn aside to your servant's house. Wash your feet and spend the night. Then you can get up early and go on your way. No, they said, we'd rather spend the night in the square. But he urged them so strongly that they followed him and went into his house. He prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread for them, and they ate. Now, if you remember back in chapter 18, these two chapters, they start very similarly to one another. The beginning of chapter 18, three men visit Abraham at the entrance of his tent, and as we worked our way through that chapter, we saw that those men were a a manifestation of the Lord himself. God came to visit Abraham. And toward the end of chapter 18, two of those three men went up, uh, got up and, and went toward Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And here we see that those two men are actually two angels that looked like men, and now they've reached the destination that they were headed for from chapter 18. So we're, we're continuing through that. They entered Sodom, and Lot was sitting at the entrance to the city. Back then, the gateway to the city was the hub of, of all the political uh, uh, and, and uh, business dealings, okay? It was, it was where important decisions were made, and the men who sat at the entrance of the city were considered leaders in that city, prominent men uh, who, who did the business and, and political dealings. So Lot had apparently become one of those prominent leaders of Sodom because we see him here at the, the entry gate, and probably because of his great wealth. If you remember back in chapter 13, he separated from Abraham because they both had too many possessions to stay together. Now, his prominence in Sodom could also be due to the fact that Abraham is his uncle, right? And Abraham had rescued him and, and the city of Sodom, the, the kingdom of Sodom from captivity uh, from enemy kings back in chapter 14. But it's important for us to note here the progression uh, that Lot takes from chapter 13 up to this point in chapter 19. He goes from pitching his tent near Sodom in chapter 13 to living inside the city in chapter 14 to becoming a prominent leader of the city in chapter 19. So over the course of time, Lot's life became more and more enmeshed with this city that was known for wickedness and evil. It's never a good thing. It's never a good thing when we progressively move forward towards sin instead of keeping our distance from it. It's never a good thing. So Lot sees the angels, and then his response, it was similar to Abraham's at the beginning of chapter 18. He honored these men by bowing down before them as Abraham had done. He offered them a, a place of rest, uh, uh, to rest and, and to serve them a meal like Abraham did. But there's a few important things mentioned in these first verses that clue us into the fact that Lot's encounter with these angels is going to be really different than Abraham's encounter. Clue number one. Verse one says that the, Abra uh, that, uh, the angels entered Sodom in the evening. Now that fits with the timeline. If you remember back in chapter 18 when they came to visit Abraham, it was midday. Okay? It was the heat of the day. And then they get up, they eat the meal, they rest there, they get up and they leave. So by the time they get to Sodom, now it's sundown, right? Same day, just later in the day. But this is telling us more than a, a chronological line of, a, of events here. Throughout the Bible, the darkness of night is often associated with sin and wickedness. 
And these angels entered Sodom as the sun is going down. That's not just a, a, a detail that we throw away. It's telling us something. Clue number two. When Abraham invited these men to stay a while, what'd they say? Yeah. When Lot invited these men to stay, what did they say? No. No. When they came to Abraham, they came with blessing. When they came to Sodom, they came with judgment. Clue number three. After hearing that the angels wanted to spend the night in the square, verse three tells us that Lot urged them so strongly that they followed him and they went into his house. The sense in the Hebrew here is that, they, that he coerced them to come with him. He forcefully, like, almost grabbed them and, and dragged them into his house. He's not just inviting them into his house out of hospitality. He's doing it out of concern for their safety. Lot knew that it would be dangerous for them to spend the night in the square, and he was afraid of what might happen to them if they did. It was his fear that drove him to urge them to come stay at his house more than it, it was his hospitality. But it turns out that his house wasn't safe either. Look at verse 4. Before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population, surrounded the house. They called out to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out with us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went out to them and at the entrance and shut the door behind him. He said, don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been in intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men because they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of the way, they said, adding, this one came here as an alien, but he's acting like a judge. Now we'll do more harm to you than to them. And they put pressure on Lot and came up to break down the door. Yikes. Things escalated pretty quickly, right? There's a lot of uncomfortable things here. Things that we need to process. And we need to be careful not to, neither to downplay these things nor to overemphasize them, but we do need to take an honest look at them because they're right here in the word of God. And if God talks honestly about these things, then we ought to as well as his people. Genesis 18 Verse 20 and 21, the Lord told Abraham, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense and their sin is extremely serious. He said, I will go down and see if what they've done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I'll find out. Now we know this, we talked about this in chapter 18. God is omniscient. He knows all things at all times. Everything all the time. He never needs to find out whether something is true or not. He told Abraham those things because he was letting Abraham in on what he was about to do to, to Sodom and Gomorrah. And that prompted Abraham then to intercede on behalf of his nephew Lot and ask God to spare the city on behalf of the righteous. Back in, Ge in Genesis 13, verse 13, we were told that the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. Here in verses in the verses that I just read in chapter 19, now we get to go down and see ourselves this outcry of injustice. We get to go down and see if what they've done justifies the cry against them that has come up to the Lord. And these verses show us that that outcry against them is justified. The men of the city, young and old, the whole population surrounded the house, it says. 
The sense in the Hebrew here is that every last man in the city was at Lot's door. Now, whether that statement is meant to be a hyperbole or it's meant to be literal, it serves the same point either way. It communicates the depth of depravity in the city. Abraham had asked the Lord if he would spare the city if just 10 righteous ones could be found in it. He started with 50 and just kept working his way down, right? Got to 10 and God said every time, yeah, if, if, I, if, if I find 10 righteous ones, I'll spare the city. Verse 4 here tells us that not even 10 righteous men could be found there. The men of the city were indeed evil, and their sin was extremely serious. They were indeed sinning immensely against the Lord, just as God's word has told us in Genesis 13, just as God had brought it back up again in Genesis 18 with Abraham. Now, it's important for us to understand this, because if the judge of all the earth calls something sin, then that thing is sin, and it always will be sin. God never changes his mind about what's right or what's wrong. Our culture has promoted the self-expression of sexual identity to the point where each individual has become the sole authoritative voice to declare who or what they are. And everyone else is expected to celebrate their self-proclaimed identity or risk being accused of hatred and bigotry or of being on the wrong side of history. But if we are to import the cultural view into these verses here, we have a problem. Because our cultures, by our culture's logic, these men of Sodom, they have every right then to determine their own sexual identity and preferences. But no one in their right mind would read these, wor- these, these verses and say that anything happening here is good. And so in order to keep what we see here from conflicting with what our culture currently teaches and celebrates, we have to qualify what these men were doing and put it into a different category. This isn't homosexual love, this is homosexual rape. Because it's not consensual. And so we can still call this sin without calling all homosexual activity sin. But the judge of all the earth doesn't make that distinction and so we can't either. It's clear from verse 7 that that what these men wanted to do was evil. Lot himself said it. And throughout his word, God makes it clear that all forms of homosexual activity are sinful and never celebrated. God calls same-sex sexual activity detestable in Leviticus 18 and 20. And his stance on the subject doesn't change when we get to the New Testament. In Romans 1, same-sex sexual activity is associated with suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And it says that those who do those things commit shameless acts that are driven by disgraceful passions that distort the natural order that God created. 1 Corinthians 6 says that anyone who practices these things will not inherit God's kingdom. 1 Timothy 1 says that those who practice these things are doing what is contrary to the sound teaching of the gospel. If the judge of all the earth calls something sin, then that thing is sin. And it always will be sin. If God calls it sin, then we must call it sin too. But we also have to be careful not to focus so much on the sinfulness of homosexual practices that we fail to see the heinousness of the other sins being committed in this chapter, even and including the one that Lot committed right here. 
Because what he offered as an alternative, it's no better. It's no better. It's just as evil, just as sinful as what the men wanted to do in verse 5. When Lot offered his two daughters to the men so they could do whatever they wanted to the women, the Hebrew phrase there literally is, do what is good in your own eyes. How many times have we heard that in Genesis? How many times has that led to something good? Zero. It's always led to something sinful. We need to understand that homosexual behavior is not the only sexual activity that Scripture identifies as sinful. All sexual activity outside of a lifelong marriage union between a man and a woman is sinful according to God's word. The Bible summarizes all unacceptable sexual behavior with this phrase, sexual immorality. And Scripture never uses this phrase to indicate something positive or worth celebrating. You cannot spin it. God calls it sin. It's sin. We also need to understand that homosexual behavior is not the only thing that Sodom was condemned for. In Ezekiel 16, God elaborated on the sin of Sodom that brought down the city, that brought the destruction upon the city. He said there that they were haughty and they did detestable acts. Yes, but also that those, or, but those acts weren't limited to what we see here in chapter 19. God also said that the people of Sodom in Ezekiel 16, he said that they were prideful, that they were gluttonous, that they were lazy, that they neglected the poor and the needy. In other words, they were self-reliant, self-indulgent, and full of injustice. Now, in each of those Old Testament and New Testament passages I mentioned a minute ago, homosexual activity is never mentioned by itself. It's never singled out. It's in a list, in all those passages, it's in a list of other condemnable sins, including other forms of sexual immorality, including murder, lying, pride, maybe we should bring the kids back out for this one, disobedience to parents, That's condemnable. That's sin. Including greed, deceit, gossip, idolatry, drunkenness, abuse. These lists aren't exhaustive, but the point is clear in all of those passages, just as it is here in Genesis 19. And here's the point. Anyone who does anything that is unacceptable to God is subject to the good and right, and just condemnation and judgment from God. Because what God calls sin is sin, and it always will be. When we understand this truth, that anyone who does anything that is unacceptable to God is subject to the condemnation and judgment of God, when, when we understand that truth and we, and we know that, we begin to see that, listen, we now are, now, are, are no more better off than the people of Sodom. We are not so different from these men who are trying to get into Lot's house because the outcry against our sin is just as condemning as the outcry against theirs. Lot is no better than those men and neither are we. Now, listen, that doesn't mean that we don't have the right to call sin, sin. 
we'd be lying if we called sin something other than what it is. What it means is that we have no right to elevate ourselves over other sinners. Apart from God's grace, we all stand condemned before the judge of the whole earth, and we all stand in need of his mercy. The ancient Near Eastern code of hospitality required the host to protect his guests at all costs. And so in that context, Lot's behavior in verse 8 is perhaps understandable, right? We, we can at least have a category for it. He's just trying to follow the code of, of, of hospitality. But it doesn't mean that we should see his behavior as acceptable. We can understand it. We cannot accept it. In verse 7, he called the men of Sodom my brothers because he saw them as his fellow countrymen, right? He's a leader in the city now. (laughs) Did they reciprocate? In verse 9, they did not reciprocate the sentiment. They called him an alien, a foreigner, an outsider. And they were appalled that he had the audacity to judge their behavior and call it evil. Who is this guy? When we love our sin... We hate it when someone points it out as sinful and tells us it's wrong. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we've been called to speak the truth to one another in love. So that means when you see sin in my life, please don't ignore it. And don't assume that I see it myself. And that means when I see it in your life, It would be unloving for me to ignore it. It would be unloving for me to assume that you see it yourself. Instead, we ought to approach one another in humility, in gentleness, in patience, in love, and call sin what it is. It's evil. And invite one another to remember the finished work of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and to encourage one another, as as 2 Timothy 2.22 says, to flee the evil desires of your youth and to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Why is their heart pure? Because Jesus has purified it. And we rest together in the grace of our Heavenly Father and we seek refuge and strength and the ability to do what he's called us to in his indwelling spirit. God is with us and he enables us to obey him. Do you get defensive when God uses a brother or sister in Christ to humbly reveal sin in your life? I want you to know that it convicts my own heart to know that when I get defensive toward a brother and sis- or sister in the Lord for, for simply obeying Scripture and helping me see my sin, I'm convicted because it reveals that I'm behaving more like the men of Sodom than I am like someone who's relying on God's grace to mold and shape me into the image of His Son. The men of Sodom had no regard for God. And they didn't appreciate Lot's assessment of their behavior. And so they treated Lot with more harm, literally more evil. It's the same word that he said, don't do this evil. They said, we're going to do more of it. And they put pressure on him. 
Lot had forcibly urged the angels to come to his house instead of staying in the city square. And now these men of the city were forcibly pressing their way past Lot so that they could break down his door. Look at verse 10. But the angels reached out, brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with blindness so that they were unable to find the entrance. Then the angel said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, a son-in-law, your sons and daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. The men of the city of Sodom were a threat to Lot, but they were not a threat to these angels. The angels had come to Sodom under the authority of the judge of all the earth to destroy the city because of the wickedness of the people there. Listen, it was nothing for them to strike these men with blindness so that they were unable to find the entrance to Lot's house. How much more so would the men of Sodom be unable to escape then the coming destruction that the angels were sent to bring upon them? With an outstretched arm, literally, the angels rescued Lot from danger by bringing him into the house and with them and shutting the door. This language in verse 10 is reminiscent of Genesis 7 when God brought Noah and his family into the ark. And what did he do? He shut the door. Shut them in before he flooded the world. And just as God warned Noah of the impending judgment of the wicked and told him to bring his family into the ark... So then the angels also warned Lot of the impending judgment of the wicked and told him to bring his family out of the city. Look at verse 14. So Lot went out, and he spoke to his sons-in-law, who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Now, the text doesn't tell us whether or not Lot's sons-in-law had been participants in this wickedness that had just taken place outside of Lot's house, but two things are apparent, are apparent either way. They, one, they were offered rescue, and two, they rejected it. They were offered rescue, and they rejected it. When Lot warned them about God's impending judgment of the city, they laughed it off as a joke. Do you ever see uh, Beauty and the Beast? Crazy old Maurice. That just popped into my head. I don't Should have just kept going, sorry. But that's it, right? Like, this dude's crazy. It doesn't matter. He's joking. Here's Lot again. We need to be clear. Lot's sons-in-law are responsible for their rejection of the message. The message was no less true because Lot was the one who delivered it. They rejected it. They laughed it off. But listen, it's probably hard to take his warning seriously when his own behavior isn't exactly commendable, right? Anybody make a New Year's resolution this year? (laughs) Nobody. I feel like some of you aren't being honest. Anybody break a New Year's resolution this year? Listen, we, okay, so maybe you didn't do it this year. Maybe you, maybe you got, you figured it out, right? Like, I'm not going to do it because I'm just going to break it. 
But this is, this is what we do, isn't it? We start with good intentions. We, we have these plans. that We get this routine established we, we, so that we can stay on track, and then some, something unexpected comes. It, it interrupts our, our plans, our routine. It throws you off track a little bit. After a while, you realize, man, this is, this is hard to just like keep going in this. And so you begin to make compromises. I'll, I'll just do it tomorrow, Right? And then at some point, you conclude that the work's too difficult, so you just give up altogether, which I imagine is why none of us raised our hand. We've all made compromises when it comes to New Year's resolutions, but listen, we should not and we cannot make compromises when it comes to sin. We can't. Because doing so not only hinders our relationship with the Lord, but it also discredits the message that he's given to us. It discredits the message that we've then proclaimed to others. How will people take your warnings of God's judgment seriously against their sin if they don't even see you taking your own sin seriously? God takes sin seriously, so we need to take sin seriously too, especially our own. Lot had offered his, his own daughters, the fiancés of these men, to the mob of wicked men so that they could do whatever they wanted to the women. Lot made compromises that encouraged sin, and so his words of warning fell against dead ears. One of the consistent themes throughout all Scripture, I just said it, is that God takes sin seriously. Not only will he not tolerate wickedness, but he will bring his righteous judgment and wrath on all those who practice wickedness. And the only way to escape his judgment is to be rescued from it. Look at verse 15. At daybreak, the angels urged Lot on. Get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. Because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, in the hands of his two daughters, and they brought him out and left him outside the city. As soon as the angels got them outside, one of them said, run for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please, your servant is indeed, it has indeed found favor with you and you have shown me great kindness by saving my life. But I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, this town is close enough for me to flee to. It's a small place. Please let me run to it. It's only a small place, isn't it? So that I can survive. And he said to him, all right, I'll grant your request about this matter too, and I will not demolish the town you mentioned. Hurry up, run to it, for I cannot do anything until you get there. Therefore, the name of the city is Zoar. The sun had risen over the land when, when Lot reached Zoar. And then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities and whatever grew on the ground. But Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. <coughs> Excuse me. If Lot's salvation was up to himself, would he have been saved? No. After the angels urged him to get up, take his family and go, verse 16 says Lot hesitated. He built wealth and status in the city, right? And I imagine that it would be difficult 
for him to leave that behind. But no amount of worldly wealth and status could protect him from being swept away in the destruction of the city. After the angels brought Lot and his family out of Sodom, they told him to run to the mountains, get to the high ground. But he thought the mountains were too far to run to, and so he begged him to let him stay in the plain, the plain that's going to get destroyed and to flee to the small city of Zoar instead. He feared for his life, even though it was clearly evident that the Lord was protecting him and his family. God even said, I'll wait for you to get to Zoar. Why wouldn't he also wait for you to get to the mountains? Lot, right? Lot did nothing to contribute to his salvation here. If anything, we could say that his actions would have kept him from escaping the coming destruction of the Lord if it hadn't been for the strong and merciful hand of the Lord himself because God had compassion for Lot. Lot was, even when he lingered as they were leaving Sodom, the angels literally grabbed Lot's hand and the hand of his wife and his daughters and they brought them outside the city. When Lot refused to run to the mountains and he wanted to run to Zoar instead, God mercifully spared the city from destruction so that Lot and his family could find shelter there. Lot was saved because of God's Mercy and compassion, not because of his own obedience or effort. The credit and the glory goes to the Savior, not to the one being saved. Verse 24 and 25 make it clear that the Lord's judgment was no idle threat. It was certain, it was catastrophic, it was complete. Back in chapter 13, when Abraham and Lot parted ways, Lot looked out over the entire plain of the Jordan. It says, as far as Zoar. And he saw that it was well watered everywhere, like the Lord's garden in the land of Egypt. Guess what that plain looks like now? A pile of burning sulfur. A barren wasteland. At some point while Lot and his family were fleeing to Zoar, Lot's wife looked back towards Sodom, even though the angels specifically told them in verse 17, don't look back. Don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains. The Hebrew in, the, in verse 26 implies here that, that Lot's wife stopped, she turned around, and she gazed. She stared for a long time gave a long, lingering look at Sodom while it was being pummeled with fire and sulfur from the Lord. Most likely, it wasn't a look of curiosity, like, what, what's he doing back there, right? I just kind of want to see what it, what it looks like. But rather, it was a look of longing as she watched the life of security that they had built for themselves go up in smoke. And when she looked back, she too was judged along with the city and the cities of the plain. Remember, it's not just Sodom, it's Gomorrah. It's all these, all these cities around there. It's a strange picture, right? I mean, she turned into a pillar of salt. Possibly as a result of the fiery sulfur that was raining down. It's not clear how. But how she turned into a pillar of salt is not as important as why. She turned into a pillar of salt. And Jesus helps us understand the importance of this passage in Luke 17 when he tells his disciples about his second coming and the judgment that would come with him. Luke 17, 26 through 33, Jesus says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. 
People went on eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It will be the same as it was in the days of Lot. People went on eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed, a.k.a. the second coming of Christ. On that day, a man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who is in the field must not turn back. Don't look back. Don't stop. Don't turn around. Flee the coming destruction. Jesus says this, remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Lot's wife serves as a warning to anyone who has yet to take God's judgment against sin seriously. This, the, the earthly securities that you think that you have, they are not securities at all when it comes to evading God's holy justice and wrath against your sin and against you because of your sin. There is only one way of escape, and it's the way that God himself has provided through his son, Jesus Christ. Christ died on the cross to take the wrath that sinners deserve. Here's the bad news. We're all sinners that deserve the wrath of God. But here's the good news. For all those who put their trust in Christ, you don't have to be judged for your sin because you're relying on Christ's payment in your place. The judgment that Jesus received on the cross, it was catastrophic. It was complete. It was total. And through it, God mercifully provided our way of escape. God's judgment against wicked, uh, the, the wickedness of sin and the wicked who sin, his judgment against them is certain. And on that day when Christ returns, that day will take the world by surprise, just as the flood did in Noah's day, just as the fire and sulfur did in Lot's day. Listen to me. You must flee from the securities of this world and run to Christ, or you will be judged by the mighty hand of the Lord. And that judgment on you will be catastrophic and complete. So why not flee then to the merciful arms of Christ? Confess your need for him to save you. Don't look back. There is nothing behind you that can help you. Flee from your sin. Turn from it. Trust in Jesus. Don't laugh it off. I think we need to admit that this is not an easy passage to read, right? Especially just this part that we just read. Because it seems like Lot and his wife, like, they're, they, their behavior is pretty similar, right? But Lot is rescued, and she is judged. And so in order to make sense of that, we need to recognize a couple things, I think. The first is our own tendency to look for something that the person did to be saved rather than what God did to save them. But that leaves us with more questions than answers because of the inconsistency that we see in people's behavior all throughout Scripture and, and, and even in our own life experience. The one consistent thing that we can point to is that only those who believe God are saved. Notice that I did not say those who believe in God. 
I said those who believe God. There are a lot of people that believe in God, but they don't believe a word he says. That is not salvation. That's self-deceit. Lot was hesitant and fearful, but he believed what God said. He believed that God was going to destroy the city when the angels told him. But when the angels said, don't look back and don't stop anywhere, what did Lot's wife do? She did exactly the opposite of what they said. She, she did what they said not to do. That's evidence of unbelief, and she was judged for it. Now, we've said this already. Lot was no more deserving than the men of Sodom, no more deserving than his wife to be saved from judgment. He believed God, and he was saved. She did not believe God, and she was judged. But Lot wasn't saved by his faith in God. Nobody is. Our faith does not save us. We are saved by God and his grace through our faith. Faith is the avenue through which God chooses to reveal our need for him and our belief that he satisfied that need. Belief is necessary. I'd be lying to you if I did not tell you, you must believe. Belief is necessary, but it's not the strength of our faith that rescues us. It's the strength of the one who is the object of our faith. And that is God alone. Second thing we need to recognize is the bigger picture of, what's, of what Lot's rescue points us to. And for that, we need to keep reading. Look at verse 27. Early in the morning, Abraham went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the, of the plain. And he saw that smoke was going up from the land like smoke of a furnace. And so it was when Lot destroyed the cities of the plain, or when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. This is the only time Abraham's mentioned in this chapter. But these few verses provide us with some really key information. Verse 27 says, early in the morning, this is the same time that the angels told Lot to get up and get out of the city. While that's happening... In Sodom, Abraham is up where, on the mountain side where he had stood before the Lord. Remember that place in chapter 18? This is where Abraham had the exchange with God and said, listen, if you find 50 people there, will you spare the whole city? How about 40, 30, 20, 10? And he interceded on behalf of Lot before the Lord. Here in verse 29, it says, God remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the destruction. God remembered his commitment to Abraham through the covenant that he made with him. And Lot experienced the blessing because of that. Lot's rescue came through the intercession of another. Is that not the picture of the gospel? Our rescue came through the intercession of another who's far greater than Abraham. We read chapter 20 last week. We know Abraham's faults. Not only does Jesus pray for us as Abraham did for Lot, but Christ did so much more. Listen, he traded places with us. He took the fullness, the fullness of God's wrath against our sin upon himself, and he gave us the fullness, 
the fullness of his righteousness instead. He died on the cross and he rose from the grave to set us free from condemnation for our sin once and for all. And so it will be when judgment day comes, God, and it's our turn to stand before the Lord, God will look and remember Christ and rescue us from the destruction of the wicked. If you're a follower of Christ, your judgment day was at the cross. This is good news. Nobody, nobody can save themselves. We all need to be saved from ourselves. And that reality is evident in the way this chapter closes out. Look at verse 30. Lot departed from Zoar and lived in the mountains along with his two daughters because he was afraid to live in Zoar. Instead, he and his two daughters lived in a cave and then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father's old, and there's no man in the land to sleep with us, as, the custom, as is the custom of all the land. Come, let's get our father to drink wine so that we can sleep with him and preserve our father's line. And so they got their father to drink wine that night, and the firstborn came and slept with her father. And he did not know when she lay or when she got up. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Look, I slept with my father last night. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight so that you can go, to, go sleep with him and we can preserve our father's line. That night they again got their father to drink wine, and the younger went and slept with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The firstborn gave birth to a son and named him Moab. He's the father of the Moabites of today. The younger also gave birth to a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites today. <coughs> Excuse me. It's a bit ironic that the angels, when the angels told Lot to flee to the mountains, he sought refuge in Zoar instead out of fear. And now he's afraid to live in Zoar, so he fled to the mountains where they told him to go in the first place, right? Took his two daughters, now, now they live in a cave. But what happened there in this cave is evidence that it, even if we flee from everyone else's sin, we cannot run away from the sin that remains in our own hearts. In other words, you can take the people out of Sodom, but it's really difficult to take the Sodom out of people. At the beginning of the chapter, Lot had offered his daughters to the men of Sodom to do whatever they wanted with him. And in a twist of irony, now it's the daughters who would do whatever they wanted with Lot. And as a result, two nations were born that would go on to have this ongoing contentious relationship with the nation of Israel. This section ends in a similar way to the other major judgment passage that we've read in Genesis when God brought Noah and his family out of, uh, uh, through the flood. In both instances, both patriarchs ended up drunk and exposed in their tents and the consequences were shameful and harmful. Devastating. The flood... And Sodom and Gomorrah are two major narratives of divine judgment. And at the end of both, those who were saved from God's wrath fell into similar sin as those who died in judgment. They didn't just need to be saved from the sinful world around them. They needed to be saved from their own sinful hearts. The same is true for all of us. For all of us. Because sin has corrupted all of our hearts, we all deserve to be swept away 
in the flood of God's justice. We all deserve to be swept away in the burning sulfur storm of God's wrath. No one escapes the justice of God unless God himself rescues them from it. And that's exactly why God, in his love and in his grace and in his mercy, sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be judged in our place. Both judgment and salvation come from God. Which one will you receive from him? We need to take our sin seriously because God takes it seriously. But as believers who've been rescued from it, we have much praise to, do, to give. So let's praise him and him alone for the rescue that is ours in Christ and in Christ alone. And may we be people who don't shy away from the truth to the dying world around us. We've found the way of rescue. It would be unloving for us to keep it from others who need it too. Amen? Father, we thank you that you have rescued us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the love that you have displayed so clearly and completely on the cross and for the justice that you've displayed so clearly and completely on the cross. Father, I pray if there's anyone in here that has not taken their sins seriously, has trusted in themselves or things of this world to make it through this life and into whatever else they might believe is next, I pray that today, that through your word and, and the conviction of your spirit, they would see their need for rescue and they would see the rescuer. And for those of us who have been rescued, I pray that this passage would remind us of the urgency to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others can hear it, believe it, and be saved. We pray all this in his name. Amen.